meeting of the Our City, Our Home Oversight Committee. And could we have roll call, please? Yes, one moment. One technical difficulty. We're okay. Okay, one second. Okay. City, our Home Oversight Committee meeting on February 22nd. Um, could we start with roll call, please? Vice Chair D'Antonio, absent. Member Friedenbach? Here. Member Preston? Absent. Member Walton? Here. Chair Williams? Absent. Acknowledging that we do not have quorum, but we have extremely important information that's being presented to the committee today. We will proceed with the meeting, and we'd like to start with the um, Ohlone land acknowledgement. We acknowledge that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatushaloni have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we acknowledge that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush community 
and by affirming their sovereign rights as first peoples. I'd like to move on to um, agenda item number two, which is an opportunity for public comment on matters that are not on the agenda. At this time, we will take in-person public comments followed by phone public comments. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment in person, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have two minutes to speak. For the records, there are no in-person public comments. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment over the phone, please call 415-655-0001 and enter access code 2664-716-0145 and then press pound and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star 3 to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you have two minutes to speak. Moderator, do we have any over the phone public comments? For the records, there are no phone public comments. Thank you. So we'll move on to what is the core of today's meeting, which is a number of presentations related to um, the OCO funding um, and spending. And uh, can we begin with the controller's office report? Okay. Good morning, committee members. Um, today's agenda focuses on providing a budget and programmatic update on all of the activity in the OCO fund so far in the fiscal year. Um, I'll be providing a financial update on the budget side, which will demonstrate all of the funding that was budgeted across the various service areas and their programs, how that spending has progressed so far, and what do departments expect to spend over the next half of the fiscal year. Departments are here today to then provide complementary information, which is an update on where programs are in terms of implementation, and those presentations will follow next. Together, these two vital pieces of information are intended to offer a starting point for your budget recommendations for the next two budget years. So you'll have a sense of what funds are available as well as the status of programs. As a reminder about context before we sort of dive into the details, the OCO fund has a built-in multi-year spending plan and the information today only offers a one-year window into that plan. So as you look at some of these really big numbers, that's really important context here. And relatedly, the fiscal year runs from July 1 to June 30th. So all of the information today only focuses on that time frame. Um, I obviously want to maximize the time for questions with departments and the program implementation updates. 
So I'm going to move through this information fairly quickly, but of course it's publicly available for you all to review on the website, and I know we have several members who aren't able to make it today, so um, it will be there for them to review. Okay, so I wanted to offer a bit of um, a glossary up front so that as we sort of start to look through the details, you have an understanding of what is the information that you're actually looking at. And the starting point of this analysis is what's called the revised budget. This amount combines any remaining funds from the previous year with the annual allocation that goes into each service area and of course the three population categories within permanent housing. So both it's the annual sort of like percentage allocation that each of the service areas gets as part of OCO as well as any unspent funds from the previous year. The actuals are basically the year-to-date spending and so that's all of the spending that's happened between July 1, 2023 and January 24, 2024. Um, you'll also see a category of spending that's projected additional year-end expenditure, and that's the amount that departments project to spend then between January 24th and June 30th. 2024, which will mark the end of the fiscal year. You'll see a category called obligated funds, and this will primarily sort of correspond with programs and service areas that are run by HSH. And these are funds that have been earmarked for planned use in future years. And we can sort of talk more about that as you see that come up in the presentation. Um, but just wanted to sort of state that up front. The um, last category is projected year-end total balance. And so then this is the funding that's projected to remain and then roll over into the next fiscal year. Just a reminder, OCO is a continuing fund, which means that anything that's not spent sort of rolls into the fund in the next fiscal year. Um, just additional context here, that projected year-end total balance is really crucial in tackling shortfalls, both in the current fiscal year as well as the next two budget years. And so just as a reminder from a couple of weeks ago, you know, we're looking at, and likely the best case scenario here, about $140 million of shortfall over the three years. So that's this current year, and then the next two budget years ahead of us. But we'll get a sort of better revenue update at our next meeting when the controller's office is going to present on that. And then a last note just about presentation is that there are both charts and tables available throughout the presentation. So really depending on your individual preference, I'm mostly gonna stay on the charts, but please feel free to reference the accompanying tables if that's easier for you to follow along. I'm gonna take a quick water break because I'm recovering <laughs> from a cold. Just one <laughs> second. Okay.
Great. So like I mentioned, the starting point here is really the revised budget for fiscal year 23-24. Now again, this is the sum of the annual allocation for each of the service areas and then any remaining funds from the previous year. Just for some context, again, the percentage allocations are not going to line up exactly with what's on this chart. So the annual allocations are 50% of the fund goes to housing, 25% to mental health, 15% to prevention, and 10% to shelter and hygiene. But this is the total fund amount. These are the total amounts. So both from previous years and then from this annual allocation. Um, but the break, but really um, the important information is that the starting point for fiscal year 23-24 is that the revised budget amount across all of the service areas, including the fund administration, is $794.3 million. And so that's the breakout that you see here in front of you. So this first chart, and I'm starting at the fund level, but then we'll sort of go into the details of each of the service area. This first chart provides a breakdown of that $794.3 million separated into operations versus acquisition costs. Permanent housing and mental health funds can be used towards acquisition costs or program operations costs, and these function really differently. So acquisition funding can be used to purchase, rehabilitate, or construct buildings. And, you know, just the way that that works is that that's not sort of like an ongoing, um, you know, it's like one-time big costs. Operating costs, however, they include personnel expenses, contracts with direct service providers, and other service delivery expenses. And so they behave really differently from acquisition costs. That differentiation is not pertinent to homelessness prevention or the shelter and hygiene service areas since all of the funding in both of those service areas is entirely operational. Another note about operational funding here is that particularly for housing it does include all of the populations, so you're kind of seeing it rolled up across populations. Um, but it also includes all of the reserves in housing, all of the reserve amounts in shelter, as well as prevention. Operational funding here also includes the unallocated funding that the committee voted on last meeting just a couple of weeks ago. So all of that is being rolled up into that operations funding that we're showing here. And then as a reminder, um, because I talked about reserves in housing, shelter, and prevention, DPH is a little bit unique in that the acquisition fund has been used as a mechanism to protect mental health program spending against revenue volatility. So just something to remember as we sort of dive into those details. Great, and so we'll get into each of the service areas. 
This is a view of permanent housing expenditures to date, as well as projections by population. So this view allows you all to see the various spending categories, which is what departments have spent year to date, the projected amount they expect to spend over the next half of the fiscal year, the obligated funds that I mentioned at the top of the presentation, and then the projected remaining funds by each of the populations within the service area. As a reminder, within permanent housing, adults have the largest budget. So 55% of the housing funding must go to serve this population, followed by families at 25% and youth at 20%. So that's sort of what you see come through on this chart. Um, and I'll give you all a second to sort of digest. <clears throat> Moving on to all households. This view of permanent housing shows the spending by all of the programs that are that sit within the service area, but across all populations. So these are all of the categories of operational costs. Again, no acquisition funding is reflected here. And as a reminder, this umbrella of operational costs does include reserves and unallocated costs. And of course, this funding works differently than program operations, but is also really vital to making sure that operations can continue even when there is revenue volatility. Um, and that's particularly important um, in the housing bucket because of the nature of housing programming is such that you know once the city makes a commitment, it has to be more or less ongoing. So just an important note here in sort of processing this information. Similarly, for adults, here's the view of the programming that focuses specifically on adults. And so here you see the various programs across scattered site, across site-based PSH. There's rapid rehousing, of course, the reserve category, allocated costs, which are costs that are not sort of um, tied to any one program, but sort of help run programs across the service area, and then shallow subsidies. Again, a similar sort of view of programming that focuses specifically on families. Just a note here, since I'm moving between charts, the obligated funds are really only pertinent to programming for adults, which is why you won't see that appear within families, and you also won't see that amongst the youth. So, so you all can see this appears for the adults, but then not for the families and youth. And then lastly, for permanent housing, here's the categories of expenditures, and then of course the projections for the youth category. 
Coming to mental health, um, again, this is mental health operations. This does not include the acquisition funding that is part of the mental health service area. And so this, again, really shows us the operational spend that's related to the running of the various programs in mental health. Moving on to prevention, reminder that there are only operational costs within this area, and so here's the spending breakdown that you see. Um, and I just wanted to note, and again, something for us to come back to, um, given that departments are here today, is a big chunk of the reserve has been categorized as obligated funds. And this really speaks to that multi-year spending plan that I was mentioning up top which is that these funds have been primarily earmarked for 24-25 and 25-26 problem-solving and prevention spending plans. Um, so if you're all interested in digging into that, we can do that after the presentation, but just wanted to note that that looks really different than the other charts. Um, and then again, as a reminder, um, prevention programming does include a partnership between both the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, as well as the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. The last category is shelter and hygiene, which of course is the smallest category within the OCO Fund. Um, and so again, you see the sort of operational view of the programs that are part of this service area. As a reminder, departments are all here to provide program implementation updates that really sort of speak to um, you know, the budget side of a lot of what you're seeing here. So any sort of program-specific questions that you have would be good questions to bring up as part of those presentations. And then I wanted to mention to you all that the next set of liaison meetings, which will happen over the next couple of weeks, or happen in the next couple of weeks, um, in March, we'll focus exclusively on the budget. So another opportunity for you all, I know that this is a lot of information, for you all to really have some time to review process yeah. um, and then use those meetings <laughs> um, to sort of really dig into your specific questions with departments at that point. The, yeah, the intention today is not for okay. us all I, to have. Okay. <laughs> Um, a, a total <laughs> grasp on the $794.3 million, but um, a good, important look today. Um, and then for those meetings, I will circulate an email and ask for you all to tell me what questions you have, since we won't have a chance to meet before them. Um, so stay tuned for that. Um, but yeah, that sort of concludes my presentation, and we can... Move to questions. May I ask questions? Yeah, sorry. Um, member Freedom Vaughn, <laughs> you have some questions? Hi. Thank you so much for all the work on this. Um, 
so I just have some clarifying questions and then some other stuff, but basically uh, wanted to um, wanted to basically ask about uh, the reserves that were not, I mean, that were not uh, delineated in permanent housing prevention and shelter. Um, do you have the amount of the reserves in those, um, in those categories? Oh, it's got on the prevention. Okay. So, okay. So it's delineated in the further slides. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then, um, and then in terms of the year end balance, we still don't have, do we, we still don't have a differentiation between one-time funds and ongoing? Um, we don't at this time, member freedom block this, um, Correct. There's not a delineation of that in the okay. year-end balance. And so, will we have that at the um, at the further update from the controller at the next meeting, or? Um, I think I'll have to work with departments to figure out how easy that is to sort of yank out of these big numbers. Uh, but let me try and figure out if that's feasible. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That would because that's a that's kind of a Key. huge deal. Yeah. And then um, I had some questions around the obligated versus the projected year end balance. And, um, and so f I think probably the best way to ask my questions is to do it, uh, um, to do it uh, in categories. So for example, um, going to slide 17, um, we have the unallocated um, youth permanent housing. And so did, is that including our recommendations from the last meeting? Were those put in the unallocated category or are those considered like, could you just further kind of talk about unallocated? Um, and kind of similar questions around, um, it's a little bit confusing for me around the, um, uh, around the obligated funds. Because in some categories, like for example, um, if we have a family in a subsidy that's ongoing, um, and I know, so this only goes for this year, I guess trying to figure out like what's our actual obligation in an ongoing basis um, for um, future subsidies, operating costs for housing, et cetera. That kind of gets back to that balance between the one time and the ongoing and just kind of doing a, a check around with this decrease in revenue, um, we still have enough to cover subsidies for people next year. We still have enough for the operating, you know what I mean? Like, like, like that. So I guess going back to the unallocated, just maybe a little bit more talking about what's included or not included in that category. Yeah. Um, so definitely we'll need HSA to support in sort of the second question, but I guess I can kick us off. Um, given that this information was pulled on January 24th, um, and because you all voted on the unallocated spending plan just a couple of weeks ago, that's where, so the amount that you all voted on that shows up, part of it shows up in the unallocated bucket, correct? Um, and I'll let HSH kind of speak to um, how to further understand the unallocated amount. And I think they would also be best to talk about the obligated okay. expense. Okay. 
Good morning, Christine Rowland, Budget Director for HSH. Um, so for obligated, what we really were accounting for was things that had been put out in SOIs that we know are going to be committed to projects, but that we might not be able to get out the door by the end of this year. So currently that doesn't include the spending plans approved by the committee for both family and youth. Um, those spending plans are currently showing as of the January 24 numbers in unallocated and the reserve because when we calculated those dollar amounts for you on kind of what we expected as ongoing fund balance and unallocated from the FY23-24 budget process, those dollar amounts were kind of already rolled into these categories. So moving forward, um, as we go through the budget process and commit those funds to specific projects, those categories would then shift in um, future in future reporting. So is that the same for the family uh, recommendations as well that were many months ago? For family and youth both. So are you planning on not putting those out um, anytime soon? Is that what I'm hearing? Because I, I um, we really, you know, the whole strategy here was to try to get this stuff um, moving yeah. um, because of the overwhelming need um, that, um, that we're seeing, yeah. Yeah, I, I understand. So, you know, right now, because of the emergency ordinance work that we've been doing with the Board of Supervisors, we have to take most of our contracts back for approval. And that's just to continue our base level of services. So I know that right now, just administratively as a department, we're having a hard time re-upping all of our current agreements um, and getting them through the Homeless Oversight Commission for approval so that we can continue the services that we're going to lapse in contractual authority at the end of June. So I know that as a department, the priority has really been on sustaining current programming and getting that authority out the door before we look towards um, new SOIs uh, and new programming. Um, I can't speak to the details of exactly when that would happen at this point in time, but I know that that's really been the focus so far. So, and then that, cause so you're speaking to legislation that went to the board of supervisors recently around the contract stuff. So you, I mean, it was delayed by a week, I guess. Um, I can't speak to the exact dates it okay. was delayed. I think it's been delayed for longer. And I think that really, um, even once we get that authority from the Board of Supervisors, then we actually can move forward with amending all those agreements. So we can't actually uh, enter into new contracts for all those providers who had expiring agreements until that's passed. Can I ask a follow-up? Yeah. Um, related to that, just for clarity, um, it sounds like unallocated refers to things that have not been put out for proposal. Um, but is there some way for us to look at what's unallocated but pending proposal versus what's unallocated and f this committee can consider for other purposes because that's going to be critical as we do our budgeting? So the unallocated category in this presentation and in the six-month report 
only refer specifically to funding in Tay and family that was unallocated at the end of the FY23-24 budget process last year. It doesn't refer to any additional fund balance from the FY22-23 budget or prior years. Okay. So it really was specifically called out just to identify funding that was not budgeted towards a specific program at the end of last year's budget. Thank you. So I got one, let's see, um, I guess a question on the mental health piece. Um, uh, let's see. Um, so uh, we did do, I wanted to kind of just ask about the because um, we did an expansion of, of beds paid for by Prop C um, in behavioral health and just wanted to kind of get an update on the staffing issues um, and also kind of note this, you know, we, we continue to have a large amount of money around um, uh, acquisitions. Um, and so wanted to just maybe hear from uh, Department of Public Health about that. Any plans to any? Yeah, um, Kelly. Pugh. Member Freenbach, I'm happy to answer those questions during our kind of programmatic overview for you okay. guys. Um, we plan to cover some of those topics. Okay. That's okay. Thank you. And um, I guess, um, see. Um, I think that's all my questions for now. I just wanted to just um, comment that, um, I, you know, the funds going down. So I understand like a, a lot of concern. We also have real serious emergencies out on the street. So want to just be um, you know, once again, recommend that, you know, some of these recommendations and, you know, in some of these categories, we have pretty large amounts of, um, year end balance and unallocated funds and, um, that, um, it's especially around certain categories seem to be moving a lot slower than other categories and, um, especially around families and youth. Um, and, um, you know, I've had ongoing concerns around more beds on the behavioral health side, um, and kind of, a you know, moving really quickly on like the outreach in the street stuff in front of getting the beds in place. So just wanted to make that just from a policy recommendation that, um, that we really need to make sure that we're fully utilizing this fund, um, and, um, given, given the situation that folks are facing. So, um, just, just wanted to make that over, overriding comment. Thank you. A couple of quick questions. First, thank you. As a fairly new member to this, I appreciate this presentation so much. Um, under prevention, you mentioned that the um, obligated funds related to earmarked 24-25 and 25-26 funds, um, is that also the case for the shelter hygiene um, obligated funds? 
I think Christine and folks can correct me, but I think that's related to one specific cabin site. Is that right? Hi. Hi. Um, yeah, so the prevention obligated funding is for our problem solving budget over the next two to three years. Um, so that's really accounting for sustaining a one-time investment in problem solving that's about to kind of fall out of the budget. We've been able to take funding to be able to continue those investments over the next two years. And that's why it's showing as obligated because if we put that out in a different way, it wouldn't be available for that programming. Um, for the shelter obligated funding, um, that is actually set aside for the D10 cabin program. Right now we have um, applied for a state grant that would help us sustain or uh, I guess start up operations um, at that site. But we're setting aside some of those funds and showing it as obligated in case that state grant doesn't come in. So we would be able um, to launch operations. So that's funding that might become available for other, it, it could if be this a, funding comes Right, that's it great. could be available, but we're not trying to show it as available until we know whether we have state funding. Okay. Thank and you. And the other question or comment I have is to going back to the permanent housing um, expenditures by population. We've heard at previous meetings the concern about allocation among the different target populations, but it's clear that from reports uh, from HSH staff that um, there may be Tay families in the family program. Um, and so I just want to acknowledge that we still need to do some work on separating those things out so we can un ident I truly identify our Tay being served in the family program rather than TAE programs and are possibly also being served in adults. So I just wanted to acknowledge that on, in light of this clear presentation. Uh, yeah, Member Walton, um, I circulated that query with HSH. So um, they're aware of that question. It requires some work. And so um, as part of the budget liaison meetings, um, hopefully uh, we'll be able to help at least answer that question to some extent. Thank you. Yeah. Great. Uh, I guess we can open up for public no. comment. And of all the other. Oh, of all of them? Are we doing it? Okay, at the end. Okay. Um, so, who's up next? Um, the Department of Public Health, I believe? No, HSH. Oh, DPH? Yeah. No, H oh, HSH? Sorry. Oh, no, I'm sorry. DPH is. DPH. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I'm not exactly sure here who's. Okay. That's what I thought. I know I'm not that late. <laughs> I think I can do it. I'll try my best. All right. Forgive me, I'm also overcoming a cold, um, so I have my water here. Um, Good morning, members of the committee. Thank you so much for having us. I'm Kelly Kirkpatrick. I support the administrative and operation elements of both Mental Health SF and Proposition C implementation for the Department of Public Health. We're here to give you an overview of our implementation of Prop C funded programs um, to date um, and how they relate to our projected spending. 
Um, our property operating budget is approximately $100 million a year, at least that is what our spending plan is. Um, we have made significant progress towards implementing our OCO-funded mental health and substance use services. We've nearly um, uh, contracted for 80% of our funds um, and 80% of our civil service staff are hired. So we've made significant progress over the past three years, um, which we're all really pleased about. Um, we have not paused implementation of our co-funded programs at this time, um, but ongoing revenue shortfalls will require you know, the consideration of balancing options over the coming months, um, and we'll bring those back to you. Just a reminder, like I said, our spending plan is about 100 million. We're projecting to spend about 80 million, and the ongoing revenue portion for us is about 65 million, give or take controller's office. So there still is a pretty significant structural shortfall in the long term. Um, but we do want to highlight some of the achievements that we have had over the past year in particular. Um, we launched our Best Neighborhoods team, which is an outreach team to connect unhoused residents to behavioral health care, which focuses on um, SCRT follow-up. Uh, between March and December of 2023, Best Neighborhoods teams had over 9,000 engagements with unhoused individuals. Uh, we implemented the Systematic um, Office of Coordinated Care, or what we also call the OCC, follow-up for people with recent SCRT encounters and 5150 and voluntary holds at ZSFG. Um, OCC coordinated care for over 1,500 unique clients in 2023. Our Permanent Housing Advanced Clinical Services Program, also known as FACS, um, which provides both integrated physical and behavioral health um, services and permanent supportive housing, expanded to cover a total of 97 PSH buildings that are home to more than 6,200 residents. FACS served 860 unique clients in 2023. It is a coordinated effort between our OCC staff, Office of Coordinated Care and Behavioral Health, and our whole person integrated care teams, um, which provide mobile nursing, behavioral health clinicians, and medical staff at the PSH sites. Um, we began services for new intensive case management program that will provide 100 slots for older adults with complex mental health and substance use needs who are experiencing um, or at risk of experiencing homelessness. Um, this, began, this program began accepting clients in December with capacity ramping up um, along with staffing that is contracted. Um, additional accomplishments over the past year include expanding the hours of the Behavioral Health Access Center to include weekends from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., building on the Prop C funded expansion to weekday evenings, which launched in 2022. Both BHAC, the Behavioral Health Access Center, and our BHS Pharmacy are now open on weekday evenings and weekends, expanding our reach um, for people for um, services. We hired three new behavioral health clinicians for the Dimensions Clinic at Castro Mission Health Center to serve transgender and non-binary transitional youth experiencing homelessness. Um, and we expanded, and then in our residential care and treatment over the past year, we expanded 70 new residential step-down beds on Treasure Island, and we expanded 75 beds at the MINA Project, which provides transitional housing and treatment for justice-involved adults with dual diagnoses. On our behavioral health residential care expansion, so about 
$30 million of our $100 million spending plan is dedicated to the expansion of residential care and treatment. We um, have a 400-bed expansion goal, which is largely funded by um, Prop C funds. Um, we have opened nearly 360 new beds with 44 remaining. Um, and this represents a 20% increase over our baseline 2200 behavioral health um, um, bed capacity. I will say to Member Friedenbach's question earlier, the vast majority of behavioral health residential care and treatment services are contracted. Um, the only one that is civil service staffed is our managed alcohol program, I believe. Am I doing good with like rubbing my head and patting my belly and doing things? Okay, great. I'm like, am I on the right slide here? All right. Um, as for our acquisition fund, um, we have expended about $10 million on facility acquisition and planning to date with approximately $120 million remaining. Much of this remaining one-time Prop C funds are um, earmarked for projects which we are active negotiations on or in construction. Um, so our crisis stabilization unit, which is um, located on Gary Street, is under construction and is expected um, to be completed at the end of 2024. Um, we are um, in design phase for a new building on Treasure Island for our residential step-down units um, uh, to have a permanent um, home. And then we are also still pursuing potential sites for a mental health service center, um, as well as facilities to house remaining residential programs and or to relocate beds in county. That includes our dual diagnosis program, our TAY program, um, as well. Um, I do want to assure the committee as well that we are leveraging a variety of sources and not just relying on Prop C for these acquisition um, projects. Um, we have received almost $30 million in state behavioral health infrastructure grants. We're also utilizing some of DPH's Prop A um, general obligation bond funds um, towards some of these projects. However, given the ongoing revenue shortfall, and as Radhika mentioned earlier, we may have to utilize some of this one-time funds um, uh, as part of our, um, our balancing plan, um, and we'll let you all know. We'll come in with more precise numbers and a proposed kind of balancing plan for you all. Um, in terms of some of the challenges we face, um, we do definitely have a behavioral health staffing challenge um, where we have, where I said, only 80% of civil service staff hired. Um, it's really because workforce recruitment and retention barriers are persistent in the behavioral health field. This is regional, state, national, um, especially for behavioral health licensed cl clinicians and health workers. Um, <clears throat> Uh, I was going to mention, all right, maybe my thought will come back to me. Oh, this has made it especially challenging for our Office of Coordinated Care expansion, and that is where the majority of staffing has yet to be done for the case managers and the uh, clinicians for the, the coordinated care work is really where it's impacting us. Um, like I said, community-based providers are facing similar obstacles um, as part of a statewide challenge. Um, we have been working with the controller's office who are um, working to publish a behavioral health staffing and wage analysis to be published early this year um, to outline some of the challenges, quantify the magnitude, and propose kind of ideas to overcome these barriers 
Um, so we will um, take that information to help us uh, move forward. Additionally, it just takes a long time to contract for services. Um, in order to overcome some of the barriers we've been facing with contracting for residential care and treatment services, at the beginning of this year, we introduced legislation to the Board of Supervisors um, to waive the competitive solicitation requirement specifically for residential care and treatment services. It passed committee and the first reading at the full board with a unanimous vote. Um, and we're uh, ex hoping for um, a final passage on the 27th and we hope that will expedite our procurement of beds, especially specialty beds for people with high needs. Um, and then um, I, I, we have difficulty locating and acquiring suitable in-county residential treatment facilities. We have a diverse set of programs with differing real estate needs and state licensure requirements. I joke it's a little bit like Goldilocks where we've got to have like the right building with the right state licensure requirements and we can't necessarily stack programs against one another in a one big building given kind of um, client flow, client needs, programmatic priorities. But but we have been working very hard um, to, to, to overcome some of those issues. As for our goals for the year ahead, of course, pending budget availability, our plan is to increase the OCC capacity, including systematic 5150 review in hospitals beyond ZSFG, so the other hospitals in the city, um, and additional engagement with shared priority clients. Um, that includes enhanced behavioral services for PSH residents. Um, further expanding our FACTS program to cover all 140 PSH sites, um, completing the construction of our CSU crisis stabilization unit at the end of 2024, which will provide 16 short-term mental health urgent care beds as an alternative to hospitalization. Um, in partnership with adult probation, we plan to complete the 33-bed expansion of Her House ther Therapeutic Residence for justice-involved women. I believe they have started accepting some clients and are ramping up. And then, um, of course, leveraging new data and analytics staff to expand our evaluation of DPH programs funded by Prop C. I think with that, I will turn it to questions. Um. Member Friedenbach or Member Walton, no questions? Um, yeah, I guess uh, we would just love to hear back once that report from the controller's office comes out um, to see if we can support in any way. Because I know that that's been an ongoing challenge and I have friends who are in the field and it just takes forever to become a licensed clinician. And so I know it's really competitive too and just people building up their own private practices at this point in the city must be even more challenging. So, um, and then hiring culturally competent clinicians as well to work with our subpopulations. I know that that's also a challenge. Um, but it sounds like you guys are doing really great work. It's very exciting to hear everything that's happening, all the acquisitions, all the beds. So yeah, I mean, it's very exciting to hear this work. Um, so thank you. Uh, we will move on to our next speaker, um, Marion Sanders from the uh, HSH. Thank you. And thank you, Kelly. Thank you so much. Really helpful.
Sorry about that. Hello, committee. My name is Marion Sanders. I'm the chief deputy at HSH. I'm here to provide you all with the HSH um, OCO implementation update. I don't know. This thing. Okay. Most of you guys I've I've met, um, and I'm coming up on six months at the department. So, um, congrats. Yeah. Well, <laughs> still alive. Yeah. <laughs> still here. I started back in September, so I have my team here to help me with some of the questions that may come up. Okay. Um, some of the nuances. So um, it's my pleasure, though, to be here before you today um, to provide you this update. Let's go to the next slide. Okay. No, no this is fine. Um, so I want to walk you all through this overview quickly just to level set before I deep dive into the programmatic components um, of the funding and just how it's being implemented into the homelessness response system. So HSH adopted... Um, uh, HSH, HSH's adopted budget for fiscal year 23-24 is $713 million, and roughly 33% of that is um, OCO revenue. Um, and the components are broken down um, as such, housing um, at 149 million, shelter at 32.7, and prevention at 52.7 million. Um, and despite the revenue uncertainty, HSH has not paused on Prop C implementation. Um, I'm sorry, on Prop C funded programs. However, we're running up against uh, challenges as Christine alluded to. Uh, related to the emergency ordinance. So as we walk through the program components, um, we want to provide an understanding of the programs um, and funding that has not launched or is partially launched or is, you know, uh, fully implemented and currently operating. Next slide, please. So starting with permanent housing, just as a refresher, in uh, fiscal year 21-22, we acquired um, four sites. And just really quick, I want to note on this slide, there's just a one change at the top of the slide where it says the city has acquired uh, six new sites. It's actually seven um, and 667 units uh, uh, and leveraging over 130 million dollars in state home key fund so that's that's a correction i just want to add here before I, I jump into the details um so a refresher fiscal year 2021-22 we acquired four sites totaling 351 million dollars to serve adults families and youth um obviously various breakouts per site so that ref i'm referencing the margo casa esperanza mission in um, and Gotham Hotel. Um, all of these sites are fully leased up except for the Mission Inn and Casa Esperanza. Those, they're right around 90%. Um, there's some, there's the other 10% are offline because of uh, rehab. Um, and we have some rehab agreements that are expected to go before Hawk in March, 2024. In fiscal year um, 22-23, City Gardens was uh, fully leased up. I'm sorry, I think that's a, 
mistake. It, it recently was leased up in October 2023. Um, 685 Ellis is operating as interim housing and will be converted into PSH after being rehabbed. Um, and that procurement processing is in collaboration um, with MOCD. So more information is to come. And so also in this fiscal year, um, 1174 Folsom, uh, we're currently in negotiations with a, prop with a, property, with a property management company um, and we've identified a service provider, but obviously it has to go through the process, the HOC process, et cetera. And then lastly, 42 Otis, um, the acquisition date is the end of May, 2024. Next slide, please. So housing and other investments. So the Granada uh, is 214 units of adult uh, PSH. The building is uh, occupied while being rehabbed. Approximately 40% is occupied. Uh, and full lease-up is expected in winter of 2024. Uh, we decided to, do, to go through with some um, piping repairs, which is delaying the full lease-up. And the Diva was rehabbed in fall 2023, and that's 125 units of, uh, of PSH with uh, four adults, and that's fully leased up. So development of new family PSH, um, MOCD is working with uh, Mercy to identify financing strategy to move the project forward, um, and uh, we can provide an update in a future meeting related to that, that site. Um, really quick. Lastly, as it relates to um, PSH supportive services enhancements, we are still evaluating the impact of the service enhancements. Um, Given that the rollout of these funds took place at the end of fiscal year 2022-23, we don't have uh, the data just yet to be able to kind of expand on the impacts. And so we're hoping to make sure that we have that um, as we collect the information from service providers at the end of this fiscal year in annual reports. And the, sorry, lastly on this, uh, this slide, um, Taybridge Housing, we're prioritizing uh, to roll that money out next fiscal year. Moving on to um, scattered site adult uh, flexible subsidy housing, flexible housing subsidy pool. Um, we have 700 slots. Uh, 500 were allocated through the SIP rehousing effort. 200 continued uh, continue services for um, adult FHSP. Um, originally funded by Tipping Point and HSH continued funding in January 2022. Providers for those services are Brilliant Corners, Abode Services, and ECS in the case management um, Services are through Abode, ECS, Felton, um, BVHP, um, the BVHP Foundation, um, and a couple of other service providers. 
Um, the households serve, we've served a total of 641 house, households, which is 92%. Um, and, uh, sorry, my slides are, move it around here. We serve 92% um, th that have been housed through this program since 2018. Um, when subsidy slots turn over, they're filled with another referral. And exit destinations um, of, we've had 131 folks that have exited. Um, just a couple of key highlights here. Uh, we've noted that 33% uh, of the folks that have exited from this a particular intervention have passed away. Uh, just keeping in mind that this, uh, the population targeted here was older adults. And, um, and we noted also that 38% um, of the folks that have exited were transferred to a different ongoing subsidy program. Okay, next slide, please. Okay, sorry, I'm trying to look at both at the same time, my notes. Um, so adult scattered site, um, rapid rehousing. Um, just a couple key highlights, uh, funding for one time, um, adult wrapper rehousing for 350 uh, slots is in is being deployed through four providers. Those grantees include Abode, Episcopal Community Services, and Five Keys. Um, new funding for additional uh, for an additional 235 adult wrapper rehousing slots were funded fiscal year. 23-24, and this funding is anticipated to be deployed by fiscal year 24-25 um, in the first quarter. 200 slots um, have been, I'm sorry, 200 households have been housed and 37 are currently in the housing search process. Um, and referrals are continuing to be expected uh, so that we can reach the 350 by the end of the year. So smart money coaching, it's in partnership with the Office of Financial Empowerment. Um, it's expanded to um, all of our scattered site housing programs in 2023. Okay, next slide. So scattered site housing for Tay. So Tay Flexible Housing Subsidy Pool, um, the provider is Unity Care, and they've enrolled 48 um, Tay of the 50 that are targeted for this intervention into the program, and 76% uh, or 38 of those have been permanently housed. Um, Tay Rapid Rehousing, the Rising Up program, uh, is a public-private partnership, funds um, 
HSH funds the housing location and subsidy administration and supportive services and case management is funded privately um, due to underspending of private dollars. Uh, the program has been extended uh, beyond the initial term to end in fiscal year 24-25. So the goal to serve 400 youth through this program has been achieved. Um, the program is now maintaining 165 ongoing slots. And uh, as time progresses, HSH and the CBOs participating in this program will continue to collaborate. Um, once the private funding is spent, um, The $500 million, I mean, sorry, the $5 million investment will likely fund approximately 115 to 125 rapid rehousing slots for Tay ongoing. Next slide. So fam family flexible housing subsidy pool, um, this category, Compass uh, Services, is administering the slots. Uh, referrals begin in spring 2023. 20, uh, Compass uh, navigated a le learning curve as the inaugural program for families. So this is the beginning of the program. The team um, successfully fine-tuned policies and procedures, resulting in improved efficiency in placements. Initially, the average monthly housing placement was four per month in the first five months, um, and soon after, this rate increased to an impressive um, around set, uh, nine placements per month. Um, the Scattered Site Housing Programs team recently introduced an engagement policy um, that potentially improves the rates um, and decreases the timeline for folks to get placed. Um, Compass Family Services has also expanded its team of housing locators, increasing the capacity to identify landlords and property owners willing to accommodate subsidy holders. And housing ladder, to reference that on this slide, um, uh, Compass is also administering this service and referrals begin in April 2020, will begin in April uh, 2024. The referral process is slower due to creating the application and open waitlist process. Next slide. Sorry. I had to modify the way that I see my notes. So, all right. So, um, moving on to housing and the ETH initiative, so Ending Transgender Homelessness Initiative. Um, so, the HACA approved the recommended provider last week. Um, so, Community Forward SF for 62 slots. Um, transgender. I'm sorry, I have to say this correctly. Transgender, Variant, and Intersex Justice Project has 50 slots, um, uh, and their contracts are anticipated to be executed early March, and referrals are projected to start May 2024. Next slide. 
So emergency housing vouchers, the vouchers issue, issuance um, exceeds 906 because voucher holders were eligible to port their vouchers immediately. So there's um, a number of folks that ported um, and we absorbed kind of and referred new households as a result. Um, so there's kind of a, uh, we can't count those ported vouchers toward the number of lease ups. So 830 um, have been housed so far. Um, and that number, again, excludes the folks that were ported and that have exited um, for multiple uh, reasons, um, including, you know, vouchers expiring. Supportive services, um, HSH estimates 66% of households would accept and or want um, housing-focused case management services. The current percentage receiving case management services is lower, um, is, is 51%. However, it's likely that this number is, is, I'm sorry, is higher due to the multiple households missing data in the one system. Next slide. So moving on to shelter and hygiene. So just a couple of updates here. Um, so sites were set up quickly as a part of the COVID response and always intended to be temporary sites. So Pier 94 and, and the Safe Sleep Program. So HSH, um, always plan to sunset these models cost per bed for sleep, safe sleep was 860,000 um, per year not considering um, shelter per HUD regulations um, it didn't perform well during heavy rains and wind neighborhoods have not responded well to um, the safe sleep program because it's attracted encampments. Uh, we now have cabin sites and feel that this is the more preferred alternative to the safe sleep program. And Pier 94 um, exit data on 114 guests. Um, just keep in mind the site was, uh, new intakes was paused as of April 16th, 2023. Uh, all guests were offered housing and or shelter. 72% moved into permanent housing. 4% reunited with family. 8% moved into shelter. 12% abandoned their placement. And two were denied services due to rule violations. Next slide. So um, golf cabins is funded at 3.8 million this fiscal year, and the current lease runs through March 2025. The Bayview uh, Vehicle Triage Center is funded at 3.2 million this fiscal year. Phase two was intended to have 162 slots, 
but now we'll have fewer due to a large size of vehicles um, and also the fire marshal requirements. Go to the next slide. Navigation center, they're operating as usual. Um, and you know, we have the four navigation center sites that you can see on the slide. So the Oasis Shelter um, is funded at 1.8 million with Prop C dollars um, this fiscal year. And the transition uh, to St. Anthony's allowed uh, three additional units to be added to the site. So we went from 51 units to 54. Um, and as you're aware, uh, we had the grand opening for the Oasis Shelter a few months ago. Next slide. So urgent accommodation um, vouchers. This fiscal year, we've served 129 um, families and pregnant persons at 100. I'm sorry, 1.25 million uh, dom uh, domestic violence um, victims. We've served two households, um, and the funding for that category is at three 300,000. And uh, Tay. Uh, we've served 50 individuals and the funding for that category is at $600,000. Next slide, please. Gerald Commons, um, it's a new site uh, being opened up in the Bayview District 10. The lease um, has been executed, expected, um, I believe that's a typo. January 20, January 2025 is when it's expected to open and um, budget operations is for 4 million ongoing. Next to prevention. Okay. Sorry, my notes are different. So, uh, and as you can see on the slide, Buena Vista Horace Man services, 24-7 services, um, on school breaks, uh, and that budget modification is, is in process. We added an additional $600,000 uh, to um, expand those services to 24-7. On to prevention. Um, so we have the SS, SF pretrial access point since its launch in 2023. HSH and pretrial diversion has been collaborating on how to best operationalize the program, specifically around connecting justice-involved clients to services prior to being released, released so that they do not end up on the street. HSH is partnering closely with other stakeholders in the criminal justice system to increase the collaboration and alignment around um, the homelessness response system and the direct cash transfer program. Um, this pilot is for 50 youth. Um, we're hovering around uh, 30 to 40 youth enrolled and receiving a direct cash transfer of about $1,500 a month. Next slide, please. Continuing with prevention, um, 
the housing uh, stability focused services are folded into provider prevention budgets. Um, and some of the examples of the services they can receive are housing stability plans, connections to legal services, benefit, benefits, advocacy, and workforce development. And I'm almost done. <laughs> All right, continue with prevention. Um, we have the two-year workforce services pilot. Um, this, uh, this pilot um, is set to scale up to all prevention providers in spring 2024, and the services being provided is training, resume development, basic skills, um, basic interview skills, and so on. Um, so for SF ERAP, the average amount of assistance provided through this program is uh, $6,200 per household. And some of the primary categories of assistance that's being requested is uh, for rental arrears, uh, for future rents up to three months, and for move-in assistance, so security deposit, first and last month's rent. And question time. Great, thank you so much for that presentation. Um, any questions from committee members? Member Friedenbach? Do you, well, Scott, do you wanna go first? Cause oh, I want, okay. Um, thank you so much, this is a lot. Yes, yes. Awesome. So I just wanna note, just for like members of the audience, cause it's really exciting, and I know a lot of people listening in um, worked really hard to make props to your reality, but on the acquisitions, mm -hmm. um, with this amazing number of 670, it doesn't even count the accumulated. And so if you look at the acquisitions to date, um, we're close to 1,000 units, which is really, really, really fantastic. So um, uh, I know Vice Chair D'Antonio is, you know, is, is super into the acquisitions, and so am I for really good reason, because um, it's this long-term investment. Um, so... Um, I um, I have a couple questions. Um, wanted to I meant to ask this at the other meeting at the Granada, um, if the rehab includes a ramp for those couple steps in the front or not, because it does have an elevator, um, and there's a lot of elder people in that building. Just wondering. The Granada. Yeah, it's got the elevator, but it has those two steps at the front door, and I was wondering if the rehab included putting in a ramp there. My recollection is that um, we're making sure that the entrance is um, accessible. Great. But I can actually um, check on that and get back to you. On okay, that. okay. But it, it is a, a, I mean, it is a full renovation. Okay. So. <laughs> it's a cool building. It, it's an amazing building. Yeah, yeah. I love Been it. Been in yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, I was actually in there before it was for this use, um, canvassing voters there, um, when it was, a, uh, I think it was a student building at the time, um, but then coming in after. Anyway, um, I do love that building. Um, but I'm a sucker for old architecture in San Francisco. Um, so the other thing I just wanted to, I just wanted to note, um, on the equity stuff, just some congrats on the high proportions of African-Americans in particular that are being served. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's been a huge focus of Director McSpadden. So I just wanted to give, give a shout out on that. Um, so it just, it's, it's really nice to see. And I really, at least from my perspective, from a correction perspective, 
over-serving African-Americans in comparison to the proportion that are currently unhoused, given the amount of um, just disproportionate impact on homelessness and poverty on the community is the right thing to do. So I love seeing that, and that's really exciting. I just want to note we still have a lot of work to do on the LGBTQ, um, which is a big disparity there between 10% being served versus about 30% of the population. So um, just wanted to kind of note that and would love to do future work on trying to figure out how to, how to correct that disparity. Um, we've done, I think, a fair amount of work in this committee trying to focus also on correcting some of the on you know on the race and equity um piece of things and maybe we could do more on the lgbtq front um, just thinking about future agenda items um the other piece i just wanted to just um take issue with <laughs> no surprise here um i don't think the safe sleep slights attracted encampments um having been intimately present there um at those sites and pretty intimately familiar with a lot of the residents. Um, a lot of them were camping in the area before those sites opened up, were there after um, and during. Um, I know there was one person who there was a lot of attention on that um, was kicked out of the safe sleeping site and camped nearby. Um, but that person, having known her for a long time, has always been in that immediate area. So I don't think it's really fair. I know the neighbors make that claim. I don't think it's true. I'm also a neighbor of at least the mission site. Um, so, um, and again, like knowing a lot of the folks by name, I, I take strong objection to that thought. Um, I do think that a lot of people in the area were actually housed in the safe sleep site in terms of how in both of the um, especially the mission in the Bayview ones, they served pe unhoused people from the very immediate area. Um, and then my last, um, this isn't a question, more of a comment. Oh, this is a question. So the remaining vacant subsidy slots, I just wanted to make sure I was correct. Those are rolling out for the rest of the year. And so just wanted to make that clear from the public's perspective. Um, please um, correct me, um, Director Sanders, if I'm wrong about this, but um, I don't want the public to be misled into thinking that these are just like not being used, but it's like we're only halfway through the year. Um, so, um, so we'll have even more folks in housing by the end of the year, which is also really exciting. Um, last comment, just, we, we, we continue to have these disparities around funding and, um, I know some of it is operational and there's differences in rent prices and all these different things. Um, but I just wanted to note on the operating um, that the Gerald cabins, you know, 4 million ongoing operating costs to serve 60 people, um, versus, um, the Oasis shelter 1.8, basically serving about 150 people. Um, there's a big difference there. And I just, I'm, I want to, you know, just from a, co a cost consciousness perspective. And I, you know, just thinking about if there's ways to draw down those operating costs or, um, free up because that is still pretty significant. Um, and I knew we brought them down in the negotiations with the mayor's office last year, but just wanted to kind of, yeah. Yeah, um, I just wanted to say the 1.8 for uh, Oasis is not the fully loaded operating cost. Okay. It's the amount that's currently in Prop C, <laughs> oh, okay. but it's not the full operating cost. So I don't think the disparity, I, I, there is still some disparity. I also wanted to add that because Gerald is cabins and RVs, there is a higher cost there as well. So it's not just 
um, 60 cabins. I believe it's 60 cabins and 20 RVs. So. Okay. Okay. So 80 serving 80 people. Okay. So yeah, I mean, I know the bringing in the bathrooms and the water and the sanitation, like all of that stuff drives up the cost as opposed to using an existing building. And I know we're trying to have a diversity of approaches, but I, I just wanted to just wanted to note that. No, I think you're right to flag it as something that needs to, we need to take a deeper dive in and try to make sure that we're level setting the per night rate cost for shelter in general. Um, and it's, you know, it, it varies per population and services, but I think that's a, that's a right flag. Thank you. Thank Remember you. Both. Thank you so much for all the work on this. Okay. And I do want to just answer the question in terms of the the remaining subsidies that yeah, are they're yeah. rolling out. So the answer is it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Well, and I'll just add, I'm building on Member Friedenbach. Um, clearly, with when we look at how the OCO funds are used, they're not proportionally used the same way in every program. So it would be helpful when presenting that yeah. that we get a, a a sense of the total cost of a program if we're a part of so that we can better look at how we allocate our funds. Yes, that's a fair assessment. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much for that presentation. I, I did have a couple of comments sure. and questions as well. Um, I just would be curious to know or like in the future um, around like implementation and like how things are going around like rapid rehousing for adults, like what that looks like, what that model looks like, and then how successful it is. Because I think we see it a lot with like families and we've been seeing it with youth, but I'm interested to see like from the adult perspective how that works. Um, the other question I had was around the capital from the selling of the trailers and like what that was reinvested into, if anything. And if you guys have the answer to that, because I did ask that at the last meeting, so I was hoping to have an answer today about that. Yeah, I'll, I'll start with that question first. Okay. We're still trying to figure out exactly what we're going to do with the trailers. There's a couple of alternatives that we're researching and trying to figure out, so I don't have, you know, an update exactly on what we're doing there. But they're still being housed? Like, they're still, some, they're not they're, sold or they're anything? They're not sold or anything okay. like that, no. Okay, cool. And then... Um, I, I had heard, and I'm not sure, but did Jazzy's place shut down? No? It's still active? Okay. I just wanted to make sure that we still had a shelter that was TGNCI specific. So, okay. They added, they added another classroom there. So it actually doubled in size and then oh, that's the, great. Um, the navigation center as well for um, trans. Oh, that's great. So there's been a, quite a bit of emergency shelter capacity in that area added. Okay, great. Yeah, not, okay. not by Prop C specifically, but. Okay. Well, that's great. Um, okay. And then my next thing was around the two DV households being served at 300,000. Did I hear that correctly? That's the allocated amount of Prop C dollars utilized for that intervention. But for two households? Two households were served. Were served. How many can how many can we serve total? What's the number? Yeah, we just recently launched that program um, this fall. So that's it's sort of there's been sort of a slow ramp up. Obviously, only two households is a very right. small number, but we're expecting to serve quite a few more um, in the upcoming months this fiscal year. What providers are? Uh, the St. Vincent de Paul Society is providing the voucher program for both the Tay and the domestic violence, the for survivors both. of domestic violence, um, urgent accommodation voucher program. Okay. And then, so how many months, and how many months have two been served? Like, when did it roll out, and why, why have only two been served? 
Um, apologies, the, it was on the slide, the date of the rollout. I don't want to say the wrong date. Mm. Yep, just give me one second. I hate it, I hate it. And it's not this one. So the program launched on October 16th of, um, of 2023. Okay. And, and I, then I think as far as like why haven't Mark, because I know the need is huge. Like we've had DV providers come and present. Like most of us who have worked in this forever know that, you know, 6,000 people get turned away from the system a year. So I would just think that by this point more people would have been served. So I'm just curious why it's, you know, why yeah, there's a pause. Yeah, I, I can take that question back and get some more detail. Okay, that would be great. Back. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. Great. And then my last question is just around the workforce development pilot. Um, and I'm just curious, because this, I don't think, or at least that I remember having been presented at all around, like, what that looks like here at this committee. And I'm just curious, what does that look like? What is the pay? Because we know that wage reserve is higher for certain members of our community, and they aren't necessarily willing to participate in those unless they are receiving some pay, and it is at a certain amount. So I just want to make sure that it's actually like serving the people we're trying to serve. So the original workforce development funding allocated through the RCDR Home Committee uh, was originally in the housing budget, but now sits in the problem solving and prevention budget. But HSH actually work orders that funding to the Office of Economic and Workforce Development. There is a very strong partnership between HSH and OEWD to align on those outcomes, what do the training programs and career development opportunities look like, along with the equitable wage that is needed to live in San Francisco in the Bay yeah. Area. So I would recommend that if we do continue that conversation, that we do invite OEWD to this conversation. Great to just kind of discuss what the outcome objectives look like. HSH does request and require OEWD to provide outcomes um, to HSH on all of the outcomes that are associated with that funding. Great, and I know they've come here before, so that would be great. Maybe we'll just have them come and do an update um, once the pilot has rolled out for a while. But that was my last question. Thank you so much, Director Sanders. This was great work. You guys are doing great things, and we're really excited every time you come to you know, there's always more. So thank you. Thank um, you. Thank you. Now, thank you. I would like to um, invite the our representative from OCD. Um, Good morning, Helen Hale, Director of Housing Services, Mayor's Office of Housing Community Development. So this is this kind of thing. Finding my thing is not my skill. I'm just going to be right. I send it to you in advance. Sorry. I, I wish I wish this was my um, multitasking. <laughs> Don't even worry about it. Let the youngsters I get up and I wouldn't know what to do either. So. Just, yeah. And I probably should have come earlier and acknowledge that, and I didn't. So. <laughs> Again, I'll say that also. Uh, Did, do, should I have brought a, a laptop? I 
didn't think that was our plan. Oh, good. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> These guys are on top of it. Great. So. And will you be able to move it forward, or do I have to push the button? Are you, are you able to? I mean, I can help if you need That would be great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Again, not my skill set. <laughs> um, Helen Hale. Uh, so um, there's a couple things I wanted to let you all know about, just because there's some changes in our department. And I know that some of you have been in our recent cohort meetings and all, but I... I thought it would be good to just make that presentation here. So um, our whole uh, eviction prevention and uh, tenant right to counsel has been shifted. We're do, doing some transition in our department. And so it's coming under me. More, okay. Usually my voice doesn't require all that, but okay. Okay, I'll, I'll just not to crowd you. Um, so uh, Ugo Ramirez has been, um, I guess a good term to use is poached to, the, to Oakland. Um, good for Oakland, and we're very excited for Oakland and hope that they do fabulous things. But he is moving on, and today is actually his last day in the office, and he finishes next week. Um, so we will be um, replacing that uh, manager position uh, within the department. Of course, it's already been alluded to that hiring at the city is fairly challenging, so you all will see a great deal of me. But there, his team is, is going to be moving under me. And as the Director of Housing Services, Eviction Prevention, and Tenant Right to Counsel, is work that I've already been collaborating with him for a very, very long time. So um, first slide. Um, so wanted to give you just some brief updates about our ERAP. Um, I, I tend to not uh, necessarily read slides for folks because, in general, I no folks are able to do some of those things. But in general, um, we work very collaboratively with HSH. Um, it's been an extremely successful program. Um, we do have 10 CBO providers, um, Catholic Charities, Compass, Eviction Defense Collaborative, uh, Hamilton Families, um, Homeless Prenatal. Some of these are with just HSH, but um, HOMI, uh, La Raza, uh, MNC, Native American Health Center, and Young Community Developers. It's been very intentional about making sure that we have a vast number of providers that can serve across the city and that all populations are comfortable uh, being able to receive services at different organizations. Um, the application has transitioned online, um, and we do accept paper applications, which is important for some folks who are not able to do that, but no account is needed online. And I think it's important for folks to know that so folks don't might necessarily have to have an email account and things like that. Case managers do work closely with folks as they do um, submit applications, and um, we are able to cover nine languages. Um, the factors, there is, there is an assessment, uh, a screening for the different now, originally, when we had all of the different things at the state and everybody else, it was it was had less of an assessment process associated with it. But we do have an assessment process now, and so some of those risk factors include past homelessness or eviction, household members or seniors, disabled, pregnant, or young children, and then immigration status, physical or mental health risks, and all. Next slide, please. For a one-year impact, I wanted to provide you with just a little bit of, of, of a dashboard and, and some, some data that we're quite proud about. Um, in general, um, we've been able to serve, uh, this is one year from now, so that just so that folks know the time frame. Um, so the in total financial assistance, 15.7 million. Um, combination, back rent, future rent, et cetera. Almost 2,500 uh, households have been served. Average assistance, 6,300. Um, and then in terms of applicant characteristics, uh, I want to call out that uh, those that are identifying as um, BIPOC are 78%. Um, we have between extremely low income and low income, you know, a, a very almost entirely um, that percentage. 
um, and 67% have experienced some kind of past homelessness. Um, and additionally, I just wanted to clarify the highly vulnerable uh, zip codes in case folks don't know how we've decided designated them. That, that's the Tenderloin, Chinatown, Bayview, Hunters Point, Visitation Valley, South of Market, Mission, um, Knob Hill, AKA right next to Tenderloin, um, Treasure Island and Excelsior ONY. Next slide, please. Thank you. In terms of expenditures, um, and this I'm going to reference um, one of the questions that was mentioned earlier on that even though you'll also get information from before. Um, so it's our intention, we have actually had a number of different one-time sources that we've been able to uh, utilize in ERAP. Um, we do intend that the, all of the one-time sources will be exhausted at the end of this fiscal year. Um, while we've had OCO money as, as, attached to those contracts that have been tracking it very well, we've returned it um, for use again in the next year because we wanted to expend the one-time sources. To not spend one-time sources when they come to the city, um, just because we have a fund that could is in good use of money. Um, we have also been tracking very carefully what the costs of the program are going forward and the type of amount of money that would be needed to fund that and have been careful to make sure that we're ramping up to an infrastructure within organizations that would support the ongoing costs that we have, the money that's available to us so that we do not get into a situation, hopefully, again, we don't know how long the economic downturn kind of perspective is, but the intent here is not to defund the program to the point where we're not able to reach the folks that actually need the funds. Um, but generally, just to give you an idea, the state COVID relief program, which was you know back in 21-22 and all, but it did just $185.7 million. And of that, approximately almost 1,600 households were from San Francisco. So, um, but we have been leveraging those sources. Um, Next slide, please. Then for the rest of our, our work, which is quite strategic, um, and I do want to reference because I, I, one of the questions you were talking with HSH about, um, we do have a multiple different funding sources in different types of programs. So we have the tenant right to counsel, um, which is our legal uh, defense system, which is nationally recognized. Um, in general, we have $7 million uh, allocated to OCO. Um, and there are eight CBO partners, um, and about 1,100 households are served per year. However, the total amount of money that we expend in that area is 17 million. Um, for the anti-displacement shallow rental subsidy program, um, very low income. This is really geared toward folks who are really in rent-controlled units, and we're really trying to make sure that they don't become destabilized. Um, there's one CBO provider, and we basically have 2.5 million from OCO in that, and the provider there is Eviction Defense Collaborative. Um, 135 households uh, per year, and the full enrollment is 2024. Um, and there is an anticipation when it comes to the sort of shallow subsidy or even permanent subsidies that we have um, money available to make sure that we're able to serve folks, as you all referenced, in the upcoming years. So we anticipate and look at how much is spent each month per household and what will be needed. And we then calculate, I, within my HIV portfolio also, I've been doing this for a lot of years, we anticipate a rent increase from landlords and looking at what increased costs are on, a, on an annual basis so that we can absorb 
things going forward. Um, part of that is if you are at a fixed rate of subsidies, you have a fixed rate of subsidies. And in fact, when someone moves on, passes away, or is no longer with the program, you are then calculating whether you can refill that subsidy or whether or not you need to stay flat. It's important for folks to understand sort of that that inner working is going on behind the scenes, both within the city as well as with the CBO partner. We also have a tenant right to counseling program, which is really important. It's important for us to educate all of our constituents about what their rights are. Um, so it's very important that they are deployed out to all the different types of housing we have in San Francisco. Um, know your rights trainings are done on a regular basis. There are seven different CBO providers, um, and we have two, $2 million in OCO funds, but our actual amount is $4.35 million. Um, so we're leveraging some of our own um, money for that as well. Um, and then in terms of our housing mediation program, um, we, are, we work with the San Francisco Bar Association. That program has been very successful in being able to navigate, trying to do conflict mediation, to be able to preserve folks' housing and to work uh, with landlords and as well as their providers, property managers. Sometimes you might have a property manager is different from an owner, those kinds of things. Um, we're also working to encourage um, owner operators in perhaps working somewhat differently um, with residents and to being more accepting of folks and what their needs are. I think it's really important for us to engage in those kinds of conversations and not have it so just sort of black and white. Um, or there is a power dynamic in, in housing that is important to acknowledge. And we want to encourage our residents to be able to have those conversations. So creating a space where there's a safe space for folks to have conversations is important. Um, we do allocate um, about 400,000 for that program. And it's an important program that we use across all of 148 households were, were served. Um, and then lastly, just under um, housing, just to circle back, and I gave you a little bit about what we were doing with our permanent subsidies in general, but the SRO um, housing, um, that, that is through uh, CCDC. And we have 4.1 million annually from OCO, um, but 4.6 million is how much is in the program on an annual basis. And we serve about 105 um, households annually and full enrollment for, at the end of 2024. Are there any questions? Thank you so much, I appreciate your help. Any questions from the committee? Member Friedenbach, Member Walton? No, but thank you. Sure. Thank you so much for all this really detailed Thank you. Sure, no problem. I, and I look forward to spending time with all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, just one one question on the ear app. Um, uh -huh. I, don't, I think that is, that is that all the Prop C funds you're reporting there, or was that combined Prop C and? So when we, in terms of our data, mm -hmm. um, so the data were. I think the 15.7 total you reported, is that? That's that's all funds. That's all funds. That's what I yes. thought. Yes. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Now, we can open it up for public comment. I believe that was our last Speaker, great. We will take in-person public comments followed by phone public comments. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment in person, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have two minutes to speak. I am happy to speak in. Good morning. My name is Miguel Carrera. 
I work in the Coalition on Homelessness, so for a bunch of years. Um, <clears throat> I hear when the different departments presenting the budget and, and the budget proposal from last year and the implementation of these monies. Um, <clears throat> I still have a, one, first I want to say, thanks to the proposition C, the campaign, the OCO committee, all the people who is being involved in this whole process in the campaign, and we won this campaign, thank you to 360 homeless uh, individuals working in the campaign in 2018. I believe. Um, yeah, so, so that, when we create this campaign, when we pass this proposition, and when we want this proposition, we are not one. The people in the community won. We have 800 volunteers plus 360, 360 homeless people working in the campaign. This is the win for the homeless people. So I want to take a little bit one more minute. So for that part, I think I want to say I want to appreciate all this work we're doing together. So now we see the results. Now we, we can make stable the families, the children, the people. They can live in, uh, they can call a home. Um, another thing that I want to mention is that, uh, like, yeah, so I see all these monies how they go on. But one thing Thank you. I want to mention, give me one second. I want to mention one thing. So a couple of weeks ago in the Housing Justice World Group, so my director report uh, the, the proposal money from, from the budget from the proposition C is 960, the proposal was 967 millions. And the city was spending about 504 millions. And uh, still we have a 462.7 millions. My question is, we have a less than four months to end in the budget in this season in 2024. It's possible that we wanna, wanna spending all this money we still have left over and moving a bunch of families and providing services to, 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 to our community. So we have enough time. This you're, is my question. Your two minutes are And please, Thank you. I would like to hear an answer. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Michael. Thank you. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment over the phone, please call 415-655-0001. Enter access code 2664-716. 0145 and then press pound and pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have two minutes. Moderator, are there any public comments on the phone? For the records, there are no additional public comments over the phone. This concludes the public comment section for this agenda item. 
Thank you, Ivy. So now we'll open up to future agenda items. Are there any proposals from committee members of things they'd like to see on the agenda in the future? Member Friedenbach, Member Walton. Speak now. <laughs> well, I did. I, I, um, I know we already have plans for the public housing, so that's exciting. Yes. Um, but I did mention earlier around the LGBT um, equity issue, and so just want to restate that. Okay, great. So, yeah, we can discuss that with Chair Williams um, as well. It's not so much an agenda item, but just I think we can continue to improve our ability to be as transparent as possible. Mm. Um, considering questions about how the funding is being allocated, what's being um, allocated for future years versus what we still have to consider using, right. I think those are all things that get not lost but get confused in these Agreed. very detailed presentations and then in addition when um, both presenters public speakers ourselves when we bring forward statistics i'm hoping people can bring the detail behind it yes. um, because i think that helps with our transparency so that's more of a general comment but um, uh, this was an amazing uh, lump of information today that will take time to go through yes. after the meeting. Yes, agreed. I think making everything granular, making everything easy for anybody to digest who's also not on this committee. Um, and I think we've been advocating for that for a while, just making sure that everything is digestible to all of the community members um, because every industry has its language and we all speak it, but not everybody else does. Um, so. And then just one other comment that I think we as a committee need to make part of our um, meetings the encouragement that the various sources for getting additional members to this committee yes. be as proactive as possible as well as community members uh, who are interested and have the requirements for the different seats come forward because uh, today's information we didn't have a vote so not having quorum is not a critical issue but coming going forward that's going to be a real challenge so I just agree so maybe that is maybe that is an agenda item at the end where we can sort of detail what the process for the application is because you know for those of us again who work in this and do this um, we can rely on our networks to assist us but there might be people who want to join who don't know how to get on the committee um, and I'd love to see those kind of people join so um, maybe we can add that Ivy to an agenda item and we can say it out loud like that people who are listening as well um, know how to apply know what the open seats are um, and that might also put pressure on other folks to uh, appoint other members so Agreed. Thank you. Yes, thank you. This was great. Um, so now we will open that up for public comment. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment in person, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have two minutes to speak. For the records, there are no in-person public comments. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment over the phone, please call 415 Six five five zero 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 one, enter access code two six six four seven one six zero one four five, and then press pound and pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note you'll have two minutes. 
For the records, uh, moderator, do we have any public comments on the phone? For the records, there are no public comments over the phone. Thank you. Do we have a motion to adjourn? I'm so moved, although we don't have quorum. <laughs> oh, that's right. Okay, so, okay, we're out. I don't know. <laughs> no, we have to stay here for it. <laughs>